Well, welcome, okay? And what I want to welcome you to is this sermon that doesn't really have to do with Palm Sunday. <laughs> but there is a connection, all right? So the connection is, is remember what Palm Sunday is, for those who don't know. This is Jesus coming to Jerusalem. The last time that he'll come to Jerusalem, he's about to be crucified. He knows that he's going to be crucified, but as he comes in this last time, he comes in what they call the triumphal entry, and that is people go and they grab big palm branches, which have those big palm leaves on them, and then they, they, they hold them up and they shake them like this, and what happens is, is it, it just magnifies the raising of hands, the raising of hearts, the Hosanna praises that are being spoken to the Lord. Now, I want you to think about what Palm Sunday is, because it's the beginning of a transition, isn't it? The transition is, is that Jesus, who has been with them, teaching and training them, is about to die and not be with them anymore. The Holy Spirit, interestingly, will be with them, and that's what we're working on. But the bottom line is, is what happens is, is that during this transition, okay, there, you go from a place where there was the kingdom, of, uh, the kingdom of the world was the primary thing. The kingdom of God has always been in the world. But there is this... Um, much more so after his death and resurrection in that you and I, by the Holy Spirit, now poured out after his death, the Holy Spirit now making us new, and now the kingdom of God, God himself is living in us. So we are now the instruments of his to spread the kingdom of God into the kingdom of the world. So this is a transition time from a training into an actuality. Now, having said that, I'm going to show you a longer movie clip, and I just want to say this. Introduction is long. The sermon is not terribly long, but I just don't want you to get nervous. When I pray 15 minutes in, people get nervous, okay? But I want you to see something. First of all, we're in our series, Empowered, okay? And what, what Empowered is about is the Holy Spirit falling on people, okay, in order to fire them up in order that they can do God's will, God's way, because it's him doing the ministry through them. That's what this says. Now, I just want to show you something here. Oh, there. Come on. Captain, my captain. Who knows where that comes from? Anybody. Not a clue. It's 
from a poem by Walt Whitman about Mr. Abraham Lincoln. Now, in this class, you can either call me Mr. Keating, or if you're slightly more daring, oh, Captain, my Captain. <laughs> now, let me dispel a few rumors so they don't fester into facts. Yes, I, too, attended Helton. I survived. And no, at that time, I was not the mental giant you see before you. I was the intellectual equivalent of a 98-pound weakling. I would go to the beach, and people would kick copies of Byron in my face. <laughs> now, Mr. Pitts. It's a rather unfortunate name. Mr. Pitts, where are you? Mr. Pitts, will you open your hymnal to page 542? Read the first stanza of the poem you find there. the virgins to make much of time? Yes. That's the one. <laughs> Somewhat appropriate, isn't it? <laughs> Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a-flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. Thank you, Mr. Pitts. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. The Latin term for that sentiment is carpe diem. Now, who knows what that means? Carpe diem. That sees the day. Very good, Mr. Meeks. Meeks. Another unusual name. Seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Why does the writer use these lines? Because he's in a hurry. No. Ding. Thank you for playing anyway. Because we are food for worms, lads. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. I'd like you to step forward over here and peruse some of the faces from the past. You've walked past them many times. But I don't think you've really looked at them. They're not that different from you, are they? Same haircuts, full of hormones, just like you. Invincible, just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in. Listen. You hear it? Just a transcendent moment in there, isn't there? 
when you see that face and you realize that he really is dead and there's that seize the day, the seize the day. Carpe diem. I mean, it does. It puts it, you know, make your lives extraordinary. You only have so much time. Make the most of it. Here's what I want to say. Since January, when we started this, we've been in what I might call the John the Baptist season, right? Because when you look at Jesus' life, you've got John the Baptist who prepares the way of the Lord. He prepares people for the Lord coming. Then the Lord comes, and when he comes, what does he do? Shows us what it's supposed to look like. Shows us how to do it. In fact, he even has us do it a little bit. But really what he's doing is he's training and teaching us. And then what happens? He dies, resurrects, and goes away. And he leaves us to then do it. I want to propose to you that since January, when we started this series, that we've been in the John the Baptist time, which is interesting because we've been looking at John the Baptist mostly. And I want to argue with you that what God's been doing is, is he's been trying to, over and over, he's been trying to say to us, seize the day. Seize the day. You may remember that the, the second sermon that we did in this series, way back in January, I, I put this thing on there, and I, what I was showing here, if I don't even, that, hopefully that visual help you remember it, what I was saying was is that there's another dimension that God wants to invade this dimension, and you're his instrument for doing that. And what I had us do at the end of that sermon was is we took about 10 minutes of just prayer time, and what I said was count the cost of the tower, because God is calling us to a journey and this is going to cost something. It's going to change things. It's going to make a difference, not just to the world, but to you. And don't enter into it lightly. Enter into it seriously. Understand what it is and make a decision to sign up for it. We actually had people sign up for it and then turn to their neighbor. I don't know if you remember that, but that's what we did way back in January. And ever since that time, what the Lord has been doing is, is he's been bringing us vision he hasn't been teaching us particularly what to do. He's been bringing us a vision about what he wants to do. You may even remember a couple of weeks ago when I did one of the most prophetic sermons that I think I've done in years. I could just, the presence and the sense of the Lord and the way that people have gotten a hold of this principle about seasons and so on demonstrates that it really was true, that it was prophetic. And, and talking about the fact that there's been a winter season that the American church has been in, but that spring is coming, Right? And to seize the day, to seize the moment. Don't just, don't just sit, sit back. Now, I want you to see something. It wasn't just me who was saying this. We had a couple of preachers preach in this interim. One was Justine and one was Kevin. If you look at both of their sermons, I didn't tell them what to preach. I never do. I just say, I think you're the one that's supposed to preach. What do you think God's laid on your heart? I'd rather them get what God wants than what I got. And both of them, Justine preached about, don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Embrace him. And what did Kevin preach about just last week? He's trying to write a story in your life. See how this is all vision casting. This is trying to, this is that opening speech in that Dead Poet Society movie. This is that John the Baptist moment where what God's trying to do is he's, he's trying to inspire. He's trying to say, seize the day. And over and over he's been coming to us and he's been saying this. And now watch this. He hasn't just been saying it to us so that we could assent intellectually. He actually put an object lesson right in the middle of this preparatory journey. Jesse McCracken, right? I mean, this was that moment of, is God taking us somewhere? Are you willing to say yes? 
Again, I don't mean to link too heavily if you don't think that we're supposed to do it. I've not heard anybody say that, by the way, but then they might not be willing to say that to me, right? But the bottom line is, I've heard over and over people do this. I prayed about it. I wasn't sure. I didn't think, but I prayed about it, and I became certain that this is something that God is doing. And now, see, watch what God was really doing here. He was saying, are you, are you really serious about saying yes? Because I'm actually going to have you have to respond, have to sacrifice, have to say yes in a real, in a tangible, in a physical way. See what I mean? To manifest a yes. Now, I've already told you before the sermon started, but I want to tell you now, wow. <laughs> I mean, the way that you guys have responded, the way that you guys have sought the Lord, the way that you've prayed, the way that you've let him move you, the way that you've let him inspire you, the way that you've let him get a little flame into your heart and that you're nurturing it, and that you're responding to it, the things that we're doing, I want to propose to you that what's happening today is that God is transitioning us from a time of John the Baptist preparation to a time of presence of the Lord to teach, to show us what it is that he's going to do, to show us how to do it, to show us what it really means. And I think that this is where the Lord is now taking us in this series. And I got to tell you, I am so excited. I just can't even wait. So with that lengthy introduction, and I will do my best, but Mike Byron, you're the guy who's praying for us. Lift up another church too. And thank you, Mike. Hello? There you go. God, we really want to see you. Amen. We want to see you today. We want your presence here. We want your love to just fill our hearts. And we really, Lord, want to be the new people that you created us to be and that you uh, made us to be. Um, come be closer to us today. And, and just give us a vision for individually and corporately for what you're doing, how you want us to work. And, Lord, I just ask you to fill Kurt's words with power Amen. today. Amen. Um, let's see, and I'd like to look, lift up uh, First Pres, Amen. Uh, Bellevue, Lord, that you just rain down on them, Amen. your presence would be there, Amen. your hope would be there, and that people's lives would be changed this morning. Amen. Yeah. Amen. That's awesome. That's a great prayer. I want to say, it's the, it's the right person to have prayed to. Again, I don't select this, but the Lord moves. Mike was actually part of an incredible time of the Holy Spirit's moving back when he was a student down in Stanford and Palo Alto and at a now famous church. Uh, but the bottom line is a church that has actually been sociological studies. You can go out and buy a book right now that was written recently about what happened there, about what God did and what it was and all this kind of stuff. So it's just, okay, all right. But, but here's what I want to do. Okay, so here we are. We're, at, we're, in chapter, we're in Luke chapter 1, we're at verse 39. Okay? Now, what has happened up until now is the angel Gabriel has come to Zechariah, told him he's going to have a son. He doesn't believe. His mouth is shut up. Then he comes and basically does the same exact thing with Mary, telling her an even bigger thing, which is she's going to actually carry God, right? And she believes, right? So that's all that's happened. Now, watch this. A few days later, 
Okay, here's what Mary wasn't able to do. She wasn't, when the angel talked to her about this baby, she wasn't able to hop on Facebook and say, you know, wow, something really cool just happened. Gabriel just did this and, you know, and spread it out the whole world. She wasn't able to hop on Twitter and say, hashtag Gabriel, hashtag son of God, hashtag me. See? See what I mean? She wasn't able to tweet it. She wasn't able to call her up on the phone. She doesn't, remember, Elizabeth got, gets pregnant and goes far away in order to basically hide it. So it's possible that there's some communication between them in the couple of days that we're talking about. But the strong likelihood, the way that the story reads is, is that there hasn't been any communication to Elizabeth about what's going on with Mary. You see that? There may be something about pregnancy, but now watch. So... Mary hurries to the hill country of Judea to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leapt within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that empowered. Think about that empowered. The Holy Spirit comes down. The Spirit comes down upon goes inside, quickens, ignites, so that something comes out. That's the pattern. The Holy Spirit coming down, filling, quickening, exciting, inspiring, igniting, and then it comes back out in some physical way. It goes from spirit to action in the physical. You see that? But it starts in the spirit. Now watch, if you're careful about it, Elizabeth's child is the thing that happened first. That's John the Baptist. So John the Baptist hears Mary's voice. We can say, I think with some confidence, the Holy Spirit quickens John the Baptist and it comes out physically and that even in the womb, he leaps for joy. See that? It is clear for sure that Elizabeth gets filled with the Holy Spirit and here's what happens to her as it comes out physically. Elizabeth gave a glad cry. You know what that's, let me paraphrase that. Elizabeth blurted something out. It's like the Holy Spirit comes upon, quickens, and she just goes, ah. <laughs> it's like, whoa, <laughs> see this grad cry, wow, because the baby leaping inside of her, because the spirit upon her, now watch what comes out of her, okay, she exclaims to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed, okay, now, why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? Now, there's no indication that Mary told her, hey, there was this angel Gabriel, and he said it was going to be God, and you got to believe that, right? There's no indication that she knows anything about the Gabriel, angel. And even if she did, does she understand? Look at what she just said. Elizabeth, an older woman, has said to a younger woman that the baby in your womb is my Lord. How did she say that? How did she blurt that out? Because when the Holy Spirit comes on and comes in and fills up to where it comes out, the stuff that comes out is actually God. That's why. Prophetic. See, she says a prophetic thing here. Look, when I heard your greeting, the baby moon jumped for joy. You are blessed. Again, how did she know this? Because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. <laughs> See, that, that's an intimate knowledge of this intimate moment that Mary had with an angel. How would Elizabeth know that? 
I'm not saying it's impossible that there'd be some communication there, but you get the drift. The story is trying to communicate something to us. The story is trying to communicate a prophetic moment, this, this spirit coming in, coming upon, in, doing something that comes out in a physical action. All right? So we've got a baby having that happen, and then we've got Elizabeth having that happen, and now watch. Then Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. See, it's as if that same thing that has come upon the baby and Elizabeth has come upon her, and her reaction is one of spirit. My spirit rises within me. That's a way of paraphrasing that, right? When you say the words that you say prophetically to me, there's something in me that goes, gets ignited and goes, Oh, boy. And now it's coming out of me. I'm going to read you what she says next, and I want you to understand something. If you and I hadn't seen each other for a while, and I walk up to you, and you say, Hi, Kurt, and I say, Oh, my spirit overwhelms, and the Lord is doing these great things, and all these incredible things, and oh, I'm actually kind of likely to do that because of my natural enthusiasm, but you know what I mean? But, you know, you would certainly be like, Whoa, <laughs> you know, check that out, okay. You know what I mean? Calm it down. All right, you know, here's a val val uh, Vicodin or something, okay? So, see, Valium. Valium, better than Vicodin? I don't know, so thank God. All right. How my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in the Lord my Savior. And then now look what she says. And here's what I really want you to hear. The words that she says are perfectly what Christ is about. And that is not the normal understanding of what Messiah is to be. The normal understanding of what Messiah is to be is the person who will overcome the Roman-hated occupiers and establish us as over them. The Messiah is a conquering king. Now, when you look at the scriptures, you have to understand there's this other side. He's not just conquering king, but he's suffering servant. There's a humility in him. That's not how people think about it. And even though not everybody thinks exactly the same way about Messiah's to be, you can, you, I, what I want you to see is the words that come out of Mary here set the tone perfectly for who Christ is, and that is not the common understanding. In fact, let me say it this way. If we were to describe, if we were to read all of the passages about Christ, and we, were to, we don't know him yet, we don't know the fulfillment, but we were trying to come up with how would it be fulfilled, and we were true to all of the passages, we still wouldn't actually get to this place. She just absolutely, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword and divides between bone and marrow, which is to say a cell, you know, a marrow cell turns into a bone cell, and where's, what's the difference between them? Just so small. But what I want you to see is, is that the word that comes out of her mouth describes Christ and his mission, his humbleness and his victory and everything about him perfectly. In other words, something that Mary couldn't have done herself. She couldn't have studied that much and got it this perfect. The things that God wants to do through us are the things that only God can do. That's what he wants to do through us. Everything else we can do. See? For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. By the way, right there, he took notice of his lowly servant. All generations will call me blessed. You know, I mean, how many 
how many women have thought that that might be true of them, but it's not true because we don't, but we do remember Mary this way. For the mighty one is holy and he's done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. Mercy. That's an interesting note to be hitting. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He's scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He's brought down the princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. I just am telling you, you don't get to that line by reading all those prophecies. It's there. Now that we know Christ and we see what he did, we can go back to those prophecies and say, oh, it was there. But that's just so subtle. He fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty-handed. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful, for he made his promises to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. I'm arguing and I'm saying to you that this is a prophetic moment. The Holy Spirit has come upon her, has quickened in her, ignited something in her, and it has come out in words, in an action, in the physical, in the world. Now, this is not the only time that this happens. This is now a baby, Elizabeth, and Mary. But it keeps going. Because here's Zechariah. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gives birth to a son. The neighbors, the relatives hear that the Lord has been very merciful. Everyone rejoiced. When the baby was eight days old, which is when you name it, they came for the circumcision ceremony, and they wanted to name him Zechariah after his father. But Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. What, they exclaim? There's no one in your family by that name. You're supposed to carry on lineages and families and think about how important that is in Israel for the land and all this kind of stuff. So, so they use gestures to ask the baby's father, thinking she's gonna, he's going to overrule her. He motioned for a writing tablet. To everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. What does John mean? Who's named John here? Do you know what it means? Graced by God. It's a really nice little wordplay here because you can say it's graced by God in the sense that Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are old, have been graced by God with a child that they wanted. But that wouldn't be to catch the fullness of John the Baptist, now would it? Because what is it that he did? He prepared the way for him who is the grace of God. It? So John is the one who's proclaiming God's grace. That's the fullness of his prophetic name. Now, we go on. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again. Remember, he'd been shut up into, because of unbelief. And he began praising God. Now, now note that this is a parenthetical, because when we get down here a little bit further, it's going to come back to the next thing that he does. But he just wants to say something. This is a pretty amazing thing. This guy's mouth opens up, and so the story goes out. All fell on the whole neighborhood. The news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, what will this child turn out to be? <laughs> right? Keep an eye on him. For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. Now, this then, this is all a parenthetical because this, verse 67 goes with 64. Then his father Zechariah was what? Say it, filled with the Holy Spirit. And gave what? A word <laughs> from the Lord. See? Holy Spirit comes upon, goes in, excites and ignites, and it comes out in something physical. 
and we're not going to do the whole thing because we'll do that later in some other sermon. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through the holy prophets long ago. Let me say something. that Just as he promised in the holy, holy prophets, that's where we're going this Easter. And like I say, we really do Easter right. Bring your friends on this Easter because we're going to be talking about what the prophets had to say about Christ, in particular one passage. It's just... It's just I mean, even as a Christian, you cannot see it and you cannot even hear it and just go, oh my gosh, that's just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable that that should have been written because there's no way to explain it any other way. So the bottom line is, is what we've got is, is we've got this pattern of the Holy Spirit coming upon, going in, exciting and igniting to come back out in a physical action. In other words, the Spirit has been turned into something in the world. See that? Through us. Now that is what the definition of being empowered is. No better one right there. That's it. The Holy Spirit coming upon, exciting and igniting to come out in an action. The Holy Spirit can come upon and it can excite and ignite and we not do anything about it and then what happens? Nothing. A lost opportunity. It's got to turn into action. God's doing what he's doing through us. It doesn't mean he's limited to doing it through us, but he has chosen to do it through us. We're his instruments. Now, having said that, the thing that I want us to get a hold of is, is I want you to see something. When we talk about the gifts, we're talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit right now, right? When we talk about the gifts, here's a popular thing to do with them. You'll see it in the NLT study Bible. You'll see it at Saddleback Church that did a test called SHAPE, which probably, how many people have ever done SHAPE test here? Okay, there'd be several people in here. That became a very, very big popular thing. And what they do is they take every time that the word gift is used, and they lump all of those gifts together, and they find that I think it was 47 of them. And then you take a little test, and they tell you which one of these 47 you're likely to be. And in so doing, they make a tremendously important theological error. Because there's different kinds of gifts that come from different parts of the Trinity. Let me show you what I'm talking about. I can go into this in much more detail. In future sermons, we will be, because it becomes very important theologically. But right now, I just want to show you that I'm not just making this up, okay? This is Paul talking now. And he's in Corinthians. Remember, we're doing a mashup of Luke where we see the Holy Spirit done right and Corinthians where we see the Holy Spirit done wrong. And now Paul is talking to people that are doing the Holy Spirit wrong in their assemblies, okay? And he's correcting them, giving them good theology. So when he starts talking, he's just about to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but he starts it off by saying this, there's varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, same God, who empowers them all. Now, let me, I'm about to make a distinction here, and I want to say something. Whenever we get into this kind of stuff, you do have to understand, there's a way of drawing a distinction that is too dogmatic. And we can't do that. There's also a way of blurring the distinction. The shape test would blur the distinction between all the gifts. But so, too, not understanding that there's gifts that the Father gives, which is God, in this, whenever you see it framed like that, when they're talking about God, they're saying Father. So you got gifts from the Father, gifts from the Son, gifts from the Spirit. See? In fact, look at it. See, gifts of the Spirit, service of the Lord, activities of God. Now, 
One of the problems that we have is, is that the, the Greek language is much richer on what the nature of a gift is. It has much more play. We have words that will describe them, but they don't sound like gifts. So in that language, it can be translated in English gift, even though there's six or seven Greek words, they can be translated gift. And they all mean a different kind of gift. See it? So here's what we get, for example, by going to the gifts of God the Father. See Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, which is later on in the chapter we just looked at, and 1 Peter 4. Now, here's what I want you to understand. God the Father made us. God the Father ordained us. God the Father made us a certain way. When we're talking about the gifts which come from the Father, for the most part, they break out like this. This is how God made you to be. Right? If you took a Berkman test or a Strength Finders test or some other kind of a personality test, you would find that you were a certain kind of person. This is the kind of thing that we're talking about right now. God made different kind of people to do different things, right? to have different roles and functions and so on. So you've got functional gifts of prophecy, teaching. You can see them right there. And then you've got in the church, you need all kinds of things. You do need prophets and teachers and so on, but you also need administrations and tongues, and, and, and I'll explain that one in a second, but, but miracles, healings, and so on. And then you've got stewardship gifts, things like speaking and ministering. Now here's the key to this. God made you that way, which is to say that the gift that he's given you is residing and abiding. It's who you are. It doesn't go away. Right? You may improve on it, you may screw it up, you may do whatever, but, but it's residing and abiding. It's who you are. Now, in a similar vein, the gifts that Christ gives are residing, meaning this. In the church, he says, I put apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I put those five things in there in order that all five of them should help build up the body of Christ into its fullness. You will hear in some theological traditions, people say, I work in the fivefold ministry, which means I'm all five of these. That's not what this is saying. It's saying that there's five different people doing five different things in five different ways. I'm going to totally sidebar you here right now. It's important for what we're talking about, but it's important on another level. Okay? I'm going to explain something to you about me that I think is going to put this whole church in perspective, and in particular, my failures. Watch. Most of you would think I'm a pastor. I mean, that's what I'm supposed to, that's what, right? that's what I get called, right? If you're from the South, you can't hardly help it, right? Pastor Kurt, and I say, please don't call me pastor, and they just don't feel right about it, so I go, go ahead and call me pastor, I don't care. But most people call me pastor. Now, I think, I think a lot of people here have had pastoral experiences with me that were very, very good, okay? Something happened yesterday, and the person was very thankful for what happened and so on. And I think, I, I, not, here's what I want you to understand about me. I feel like a total failure as a pastor. Not total. I feel like an 80 plus percent failure. I, I, don't, I don't feel like a pastor. I don't think I'm very good at it. I, when I think about what a pastor would really do, and it's something that I love so much and I care so much that I would really like to do, and I just don't do that. I don't. I don't have the, the patience or the, whatever it is. I have the love but there's just something in me that just, it isn't that. I don't do a great job with that. And there are people in here that would say, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Pastoring is not necessarily his strength. Now, other people would say teacher. That'd be the, probably the next thing that people would say about me. Teacher, because here I am teaching right now, right? I want you to think of a teacher in a slightly different sense, though. You get a guy in front of a class 
who's teaching systematic theology year after year after year. He's starting at point A. He's making sure he gets point B. He's doing point C. And he gets all the way to point C. And then he starts over and does it again because that's his passion. I actually was offered to do that at Regent where I was, where I was studied. And they wanted me to be a teacher. And I turned it down because it's not me. I do a lot of teaching, but they're doing it systematically. And they don't really, it's not about inspiring you. It's about getting the information into you. It's about getting you to know stuff, right? And that's not actually what I care about. I always say all the time, my sermons are way too long. What I care a lot more is that something would be planted and that the Holy Spirit could dig back up when he needed it. So as a teacher, I don't feel like I'm a great teacher. I don't, that's not really me. Apostle, I haven't done a lot of that. I'm, I'm in a role right now in Foursquare where I'm doing some of that. And there may be something there, but I, I don't know. But I don't really feel like that. Evangelist, man, do I wish I was a better evangelist. I have to say of all the things up there that I wish I was better at, that's it. I wish I had more gifting of evangelism. There's a lot of people who have gotten saved here, right? So thank you, God, for that. And it certainly is him responding to my heart and giving me some crumbs. But man, I can't tell you how much I just want to see people get saved. It's just so important to me. And, and it's just not really what my ministry is. I do it, and a lot of people get saved, thank you, God. But again, now, that leaves one thing up there. I think if I started this list and just said, what is he? I don't think prophet would have risen to anybody's top list. But now that I've sort of explained some things to you, I'd like you to think about what this church has been run like for a long time. Because frankly, it hasn't been run well. It hasn't been run as a pastor would. It hasn't been run well administratively. It hasn't been, there's a lot of things I haven't done well. There's one thing that I actually think I've done really well. And really, before the Lord, I feel like this is the one thing that I've done, and I can't tell you how thankful I am for Julie Jenkins and for Jesse coming on and for all the things that are, ha the, the executive administrative gifts that God's bringing in here. As God really brings in genuine administrators, I can't, there's a person in this congregation, I love you so much, Leah, and I messed up. And God brought you, and sorry. <laughs> I, Oh. that's a deeply gifted execution person and I just didn't know what to do I didn't know how to do it right I didn't do it well and it didn't go well and we're deep friends and we are and God has healed the relationship and so on but it's very tough for me to be having this moment right now okay uh, if you think about what I've done the thing I feel like in the Lord that I've done well is I've gone out on my walks and I have found his heart. And I've come back here with his heart. And I have preached it with passion in a way that inspires. The prophet Jeremiah says, my bones would burn within me if I didn't speak the things that God was saying to me. You think about the change we made to, to these steering teams. You think about all the way back, for those who have been here for a long time, it's been, you know, some of you say, well, why don't we stick with one thing? Well, you know, it seems like we don't execute very well and we don't get there. And so I go back to the Lord and he gives me another way to try and get to the same place. But it feels prophetic to me. It doesn't feel managerial. It doesn't feel other things. And I'm so thankful that God is bringing in people that are taking that weight off of me and doing this. The men's meeting met without me. The men's team met without me. And they're going to do such a better job without me in that meeting. 
Because there's something I'm supposed to do that has to do with men, but it isn't planning a retreat. I'm a hindrance. I need to be where I'm supposed to be, and so does everybody else in this room. You need to figure out where you are and where you're supposed to be, and then you need to be operating in that gift, in that office. So moving on. Wow. These are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, those offices, they reside. I've felt, past, I've felt prophetic since before I knew Christ, frankly. That's been my pattern. Now, and it, by the way, when I say prophetic, people think it means telling the future. Or, you know, you're going to, somebody's, you're going to meet a dark, tall, tall, handsome stranger, you know, some <laughs> stupid, you know what I mean? It's not. It's the, it's the heart of God that is burning within you to be, okay? Now, these gifts here, so that offices reside. The gifts of the Father, the gifts of the Son reside. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, Gifts of healings, working of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing spirits, tongues, interpretation. Look at word of wisdom. Here's what you'll get in the shape test. Do you tend to find yourself saying smart things to people, things that seem wise to them? Well, then you may have the gift of wisdom. Now, is it the gift of wisdom? No, it's the gift of the word of wisdom. What does that mean? It means anybody in this place, I don't care if you have an IQ of 90, right? Any person in this place can be talking to somebody and all of a sudden, God quickens them, comes upon them, goes in them, quickens and ignites them to bring something out. It's the word that's the gift. See? So God brought the word. The person gives the word. And he, he pronounces it into the world. He's, you've been used as an instrument to bring his will to pass. And now as you speak that word into that person's life, then it ignites in them. See, and quickens them and moves them because it really was from God because it's got life in it. See that? So that's what these things are. These are in a moment. And what I want you to see is, is that the, things, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not residing. You do, everybody in here, as we're going to see in two seconds, is supposed to be doing all of these at any one time. At any time, the ability for this to happen through anybody, any one of these. You are not, I don't have the gift of healing as a residing thing. Somebody needs healed, and I pray for them, and the gift comes upon, and they get healed. I, that faith one, you know, that sounds like something that might be residing, right? I actually moved in a gift of faith one time, and it's when Bill Weber's dad died. And I'm telling you, I was sitting there going, I've never felt this before, but this is a gift of faith. I just know that he's not going to actually die. And Eric was there, and he was one of the guys that said, I believe that that's true. See it? It's a thing for a moment. Now watch. See, you're, you're, we're in here, and we're doing worship. And, um, and you feel like maybe you got a word, right? You feel like maybe you got a word. And so you don't speak it out. What happens? It, it just goes on, doesn't it? See, we do something here. We don't make you run through the gauntlet where you have to get a word and then you have to come up and clear it with somebody and they like it and then you can speak it. Why? Because by the time you actually run the gauntlet, the moment has passed. Well, very oftentimes. Now, sometimes it's not that way. Sometimes it actually has some, right? It, it, you know, it can, it can still play out a little bit later. See what I mean? But I'll tell you one of the coolest things that happens. I'll be sitting there and I'll feel like there's a word and then somebody else will speak it. That's one of the coolest things. See, but the point is, is that when we get that word, we're supposed to be speaking it out because in that moment, God is trying to change what we're doing. He's trying to move us to where he wants us to go. 
So that's what we're building here. That's what we're trying to get to. Now, I want to show you, again, I want to make this point, because see, all of those words of wisdom, word of knowledge, that's all in this, found in this passage, but I'm not even going to read the passage. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to drop out into black all of the word of wisdom, word of knowledge, all the gifts part. And I just want you to see the language that surrounds the gifts, because I want you to see that this, this what, what Paul's doing. He's saying, when you gather, everybody's supposed to be bringing a gift. In the moment. Now watch. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each. To one is given through the Spirit something. To another. According to the same Spirit. To another. By the same Spirit. To another. By the one Spirit. To another. To another. To another. To another. To another. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills in the moment. I love the way, in fact, that the message translates it. All these gifts have a common origin, but are handed out one by one by the one Spirit of God. He decides who gets what and when. That's the nature of empowered when we're talking about being moved on by the Lord, we're not talking about gifts of the Father and we're not talking about the offices of Christ. We're talking about any person in here being in a situation where something is needed and doing this. Here I am, Lord, use me. See, I think we're in situations all the time, but we're not actually expecting God to move. What would happen if every day that you walked in here and we were doing worship, if you were saying, Lord, do you have a word for me? Do you have a word that you want to give through me? Do you have that? Not just that, but not just, Lord, you know what? I expect there to be words. I'd love to give a word. I'm expecting for that to happen. How many words do you think would come forth if we all walked in here expecting a word to be given and to be given through us? How many words? Yeah. You think the Lord might actually have a better control of this congregation? as he would lead us, and that doesn't mean we wouldn't make mistakes, we would, and we would have to pastor the mistakes, right? But we would do that, as is instructed, as we're going to see in two seconds. But the bottom line is, well, watch. That sounds like chaos, right? It isn't chaos. Here's what Paul says. Everything must be done decently in order. In fact, watch this. Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. This is 1 Corinthians 14. He's been talking in 12 about what the gifts are. He's been talking in 14 about how much they've gotten awry. He's been talking in 15 about how they all need to be about love. Because people are starting to use the gifts in a prideful way. They're using it to puff themselves up, and they're using it with one another. What they're not doing is, God gave us those gifts so that when someone, say a stranger who doesn't know the Lord, comes in, God gave us those gifts so that somebody could give that stranger a word of wisdom. God gave it so that Elizabeth could say to Mary, blessed are you. See? God wants us to know what he knows about the person so that we can bring them to him. And as it says in 1 Corinthians 14, boy, when you read somebody's mail like that, this is the paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 14, when you read somebody's mail like that, they fall down and say, God is surely among you. Now, when you use the gifts on yourself, when you do something wrong with them, when you do them pridefully, you use them the exact opposite of the way they're meant to be given, then what happens? The unsafe person comes in and they say, well, you're crazy. 
and they run away. And God is implying that they're right to do so because you are. <laughs> because you're doing this wrongly. So, well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given. One will speak in tongues, another will interpret what's said. Everything that is done must strengthen all of you. This is not that cacophony of, of noise and, and, you know what I mean? And I just, good old Pentecostal traditions. We got, we got a lot of unbiblical things going on in our Pentecostal house too, right? No more than two or three should speak in tongues. They must speak one at a time, and someone must interpret what they say. But if no one's present who can make known what it is that they said in a way that no one can understand, then they must be silent and speak privately to God. In fact, he says, let two or three people prophesy. Let the others evaluate what is said. If someone's prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the first one who's speaking needs to stop. It's not an interruption. It's just a, you know what? That's bearing witness with me as you're saying this and I have something else I'm supposed to give. And then one thing adds to another thing, adds to another thing in a way that the whole body can follow the flow and be taken on a journey by God. So what he says, in this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak, one after the other, so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember, now this is the part I'm really getting to. Remember, the people who prophesy are in control of their spirit. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit coming upon and a kind of blurting out. I want to say, that's bad theology. Okay? I wanted to get to the moment, but it's still under your control. How many of you have ever gotten a word and not given it? How many of you have ever felt like you were supposed to pray for somebody for healing and not done it? Well, that's you withholding. <laughs> You've got control. He doesn't overtake you and compel you to do this thing. You don't just blurt out, blah, blah, blah. See what I mean? You do something in the way that it is under your control. It is under the Holy Spirit's control as he is orchestrating a moment for all of us. So remember that people who prophesy and control their spirit can take turns. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the meetings of God's holy people. See what I mean? He's correcting a, a holy roller Pentecostal party. <laughs> right? That is out of control. And it's not edifying. People think that it's edifying them, but it isn't doing what God wants. It's not taking people on a journey. They're not learning. What they're getting caught up in is emotionalism. Now, we'll talk about all of that later. But, but here's what I want to do right now. I want to bring Greg Thatcher up. And the reason why I'm bringing Greg up is because I told you that we're getting into a teach time. Okay, We're getting into a God showing us what it looks like. And I could have picked literally 15, 20 different people here. But I just prayed and I said, who would be somebody who we could kind of talk about? And frankly, I want to say something. Uh... Women tend to be much more sensitive to the things of the Spirit than men do. Just as, a, just as a rule of thumb, I think it has to do with the whole brain part of it, that they're more sensitive to a wind of the Holy Spirit moving through them, and they can catch it and incorporate it more in the way that they think. So I wanted to pick a guy. And, and this is a guy who has come up to me many times, you know, after worship or something, and said, this is the word that the Lord gave me. Now, we're trying to encourage him to do it during the 
time, but we haven't been encouraging that culture lately. We didn't mean to discourage it. We just haven't been encouraging it. So we're trying to change that. But bottom line, as somebody who I think has given me several words that I thought were accurate, just tell me, what does it feel like when you get a word, when God speaks to you that you're something you're supposed to say? Um, and it's been for a number of years, um, ever since I was first saved, that if I'm in worship or I'm in a, in a moment that is prayerful or uh, sometimes quieter, um, what I will sense is there's a knock at the door. You know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Um, and the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. And uh, there's the, what's written upon my heart, and it says this in 2 Corinthians 3, that we are living epistles. Um, the Lord seems to share with me something. And I'll check it out in Scripture sometimes. Other times I'll think it through. Is this for me? Um, I need to check it out first in the Scripture. Is this for somebody else? And the Lord will impress on me a Scripture or something about Scripture that I already know, a passage that I already know. And I'll look to that and I'll say, so Lord, is this for me? Is this for somebody else? And he makes it real clear in the moment um, who it's for and what it's about. Not that I know everything about it, but he makes it very clear. So you're, you're talking in a way as a person who feels something happening and then you're turning it into understanding. Yeah, What's I, that feeling, you know? It's, it's, it's like a feeling of being interrupted. If I'm in worship... Um, and I have my hands up or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in uh, some position of worship, uh, there's, there's like a knock at the door. It's like inter I'm being interrupted. Not as if the flow is stopping and everything is going, Ooh, not like that, but just as if, Greg, can I have your attention for a minute? There's something else. Oh, okay, sure, Lord. What is that? Now, see, when he says this, he's talking as a guy who, who feels things, and we're just about to talk about this in more detail, but let me just ask you a couple more questions. One, how do you know that it really is from God and not you? Probably through um, the years in being tested, and I've been wrong a couple times. A couple? Uh, well, at least. Um, <laughs> I remember one time I was newly saved, and I went to this address that the Lord, I thought the Lord gave me, and it, it didn't exist. And <laughs> it was, it's, okay, Lord, this is really strange. There's not a house here. Um, yeah, um, so I, it's, not, it's not necessarily a feeling, it's a, it's a knowing, somebody said a knowing in your knower. And now, being, how do you know that that's not just for you? Because usually, the usually there's um, um, uh, somebody, the Lord has pointed out someone earlier to me for some reason, and I just, I'm sensitive to that, like, oh, I'm going to pray for them later, or um, I might have something for you later, that sort of thing. Uh, sometimes there's speakers up here. And, oh, okay, Lord, I hear you about that. Okay. And he might give me something later about that. Like I have a, um, an idea that that might, it's just, it's the spirit of God. I, I don't know how else to say that except the times I've been wrong, I, I know that feeling as, a t as opposed to the times of it's the Holy Spirit right now. I'm going to do something here, okay? Uh, Ralph, I meant to ask you before, and I forgot to. Can I get your help? Can I have you come up? I won't embarrass you except horribly, okay? <laughs> so come on over here. I, I want to, you just heard somebody talking about this, and I want you to stand right there, Greg and Ralph, I want you to stand right there, okay? Now, I want you to think of this as two ends of a spectrum, okay? On this spectrum, we, this is not true of either one of these guys, but I want to just say on this end of the spectrum, we're putting up here somebody, I want you to think of them this way, as just being almost completely about feeling, See what I mean? Feeling, intuition, a sense of something mm -hmm. and doing that. Just almost completely ruled by that. We know lots of people that are like that. And at this end of the spectrum, I want you to think about a guy who's ruled really by thinking. 
See what I mean? This is what I think about this. This is how I process this and so on, okay? So now everybody lives somewhere in the middle of the spectrum, right? Now we have to admit to something in the Christian body before we can really make progress about the different giftings and about what God's actually trying to do in us. And one of the things is we have to admit that if we tend towards the thinking side of things, depending on how strongly we do, and there's all kinds of different temperaments, right? There can be people that are really oriented to thinking and they really wish they did feel more. They really, they, you know, that's a longing of their heart, right? But then there's other people who think, and here's what they think. I think that person is kind of not like a good thinker. <laughs> See, right? So they don't really trust them. So when they stand up in the middle of worship and give a feeling, they think that that isn't so thoughtful. See? Now, the feeler, on the other hand, has a, light, has a similar distrust because they look at the thinker and they say, you're all about the world and you're not actually about God. You're not really being moved by the Holy Spirit. You're just being moved by what you know. See? So they have a fundamental distrust too. And what they're saying is, is, is you know, you need to feel more. You, you, need, you only got to understand there's, life is more mysterious than you want to make it. See what I mean? Now, the truth is we all live somewhere in the middle, but here's the deeper truth. The fact is, everybody's supposed to be here. It doesn't matter where you start. It matters where God's going to take you. Whether you start out naturally inclined as a thinker or you start out naturally inclined as a feeler, what you have to do is you have to move to a place where you're doing both in fullness. Now, thank you guys for that, okay? And, and here's what I want to say about this. I'm going to talk about the thinker more, but I want to say, tell you the Bible talks about the feeler more. And the reason why is because Corinthians was made up of a bunch of people that were feelers. Let me put it this way. The thinkers that were in the Corinthian church deselected. They went to the church down the street that was more about thinking. See, it was, this was a church that was filled with people that were feeling things. I'm not saying they were stupid. I'm saying that they were oriented to feeling, and the thinkers had some problem with their discernment. And it turned out they were right. So the whole book of Corinthians is about correcting the feelers. So there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that we're going to be talking about in the months to come about getting that corrected. But having said that, I want us to talk for a second about the thinkers because there's a misconception here, particularly amongst thinkers. Thinkers think that it's not that important to feel. And the fact of the matter is, is that God has a very different, I'm going to just rip through a couple of scriptures here, but I want us to see something. People who aren't spiritual can't receive the truths that God is trying to give from God's Spirit. They can't receive that revelation. They can't receive that wind of the Spirit. They can't receive that fire coming upon. They can't receive the Holy Spirit coming upon. It all sounds foolish to them. The things of the Spirit are foolishness to the natural mind. I am a person who feels quite a bit. I think I'm a pretty good thinker. I've learned I'm not nearly as good a thinker as I thought I was, but that's the way it goes, right? But the bottom line is, is even as a pretty good thinker, I've, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I've had to work through. And the bottom line is, even today, some of the things, tongues, for example, seems like foolishness to me. I do it all the time. Why? Because it just happens to be incredibly profitable. Pray in the Spirit. God says, be equipped in all things, right? So he says, gird your, gird the, you know, your loins, gird with the truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of the Spirit. And then he says, praying in the Spirit at all times. So when he's talking to the Christian, he's talking about, you're supposed to do this all the time. 
And I've learned that when I do that, I'm actually getting more revelation from the Lord that I can turn into actionable items. I make mistakes and I have to learn, right? The feeler has to learn that they make mistakes. The feeler doesn't feel like they're making a mistake, so they don't want to admit to it. And they try and figure it out some other way where they didn't make a mistake, and that's the mistake they make. Did that brain strain your brain? Okay? The feeler has to understand that they're fallible, or they'll never become more discerning. If they try and explain it away all the time, they won't get it right. But so too the thinker has to become more feeling because what he's saying right here is it's this, this thing, the stuff is foolishness to the natural mind. They can't understand it in their brain. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. And here's the point. You can be a Christian and be a thinker and not be terribly spiritual. Not be led by the spirit. See that? Now, now let's just watch how many scriptures there are. Here's what Isaiah says. This is God talking through Isaiah. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. See what he's saying? He's saying the way that I know things is completely different than yours. What you guys are is you're line upon line and precept upon precept, which in Hebrew sounds like a baby's little nursery rhyme. He's saying the way you think, where your neurons and everything has to fire, line upon line, precept upon precept. He's saying that way of knowing to me is just infantile. Because how does God know? Perfectly. We're the ones that need the name of a species of animals called a deer to know that we're thinking about a four-legged creature with a box body and a cute head. Right? God doesn't need to know the name deer. God knows that particular deer. Perfectly. Purely. See it? What he knows is different. Completely different. In fact, the way that it says it again in Scripture is, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we see everything with perfect clarity. Now listen to this. All that I know now, all that my natural mind knows now as a thinker, a really good thinker, everything that I know now, nonetheless I'm a really good thinker, is partial and incomplete. Now all thinkers know something. If your thinking is partial and incomplete, what's your conclusion? Questionable, right? It's all partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me. Higher. I will know at some point in time purely, perfectly, fully, richly, completely, from the inside out, not from the outside in. In fact... When we get to this natural mind versus spiritual versus the feelings, why can't you understand what I'm saying? He says to who? Unsaved people? Pharisees. Religious people that have spent their entire life in the word. These are people who live by the word and the law. The Pharisees are the most religious people. And here's what he says to them. You know why you can't understand what I'm saying? Why you can't even hear me? Because you're children of your father, the devil. What does that mean? It means you're of the world. Here's the point. Satan is doing everything he can to turn all the understanding of the world around so that it is directly opposed to God. And he does it in the church too. That's what the book of Corinthians is about. First Corinthians. He's taken a church that was filled with the Spirit and he's twisted what they're doing around to where they're doing exactly the opposite of what God intended. 
And he's saying the same thing over here. When you let the world inform you and that's how you're getting your information and that's how you're thinking and that's what you're doing, the world is at enmity with God and you cannot know the things of God. How do we renew our minds? How do we transform our minds? The word. We pick it up and we read it and we understand that there's things being said in here that do not make sense to the natural mind. And then we begin to let them work out in our life as the Holy Spirit who is what? The guide the counselor, the helper. He will lead us on the journey of understanding what all this actually means if we will let him. And that's what we're trying to do in this entire series. We're trying to come to where we are being led by the Holy Spirit in every thought, at every moment, until the time in which you're speaking mysteries in the Spirit. You're speaking the things of God. In fact, let me put it this way because I love this one. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know how God, we don't know what to, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. The Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. The Father knows all, the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. In other words, the Spirit knows the heart and the mind of God and the Spirit knows our heart and mind and He becomes the conduit. He becomes the translator. He becomes the one that takes the perfect information and knowing of God and turns it into something that we can begin to understand. That we can begin to. Just a little quick, quick sidebar here. Tongues, if you don't speak in tongues, that's a weird thing for you and you're freaked out about it or whatever. Let me just say something. Tongues is amazing because think about what it is. It's a nonsensical, non-meaning language, but that is nonetheless syllabic. What is syllables? Lines upon lines and precepts upon precepts. Tongues is this intermediary device of bringing perfect knowledge of God into something that our minds can begin to wrap around. And, then be, and then as we get revelation, as we get revelation, as we get revelation, suddenly we begin to get, get to this place to where I understand what God wants. And then you come off of the hill where I've been walking and you come into the pulpit and you start preaching what God wants because it's turned into something actionable. It's gone from the spirit and a sense of something to something that is physical and is now entering into the world, being infused into the world. See it? Now that's beautiful, right? So let me end with this, and I'm sorry I'm late. Carpe diem, seize the day. The day's too long. There's 24 hours in a day. How many moments are there in a day? I don't mean seconds. I mean how many moments. If the Holy Spirit works in the moment, how many moments are there in a day? When you're at work and you're walking right by somebody and, and they're in need and you know, you've got an agenda so you walk right by them and you don't do anything, what is it if you were to just be asking the Lord? You know, expect it. God, what are you going to do with me today? What are you, Holy Spirit, going to move through me to do to somebody else? And as you're walking by the person, you're not just looking at them, you're saying, do you want to do something more? You want to do something, Lord? I'm here. Send me. You want to do something? You don't? Okay, that's fine. Keep walking. But another time he says, yeah, do something. You're with your friends. How many moments are there where you could bring something of life, of God? You're with your family. How many moments are there? Pray for Julie. She's back with her family, and there's an incredibly horrible thing that has happened with a nephew of mine who was in an auto accident, and the passenger died. Now, there's a woman who needs the Holy Spirit. And she's going back there expecting the Holy Spirit to speak. That's a moment I think most of us would get a hold of and know God wanted to speak into. But what about the one where you're just going out for the night? 
What if we started going out for the night saying, what do you, you want to do? <laughs> what if we became expectant, not in a day, but what if we became expectant in every moment? What if we started carpe momentum? I love the, I love the play. Momentum in the Latin is moment. Seize the moment. Seize every moment. Seize every moment. Seize that moment with the coworker. You know what? When God moves through you, that's cool. <laughs> and you want to do it again. Right? And then you're looking for him to do it again, and you're expecting for him to do it again. And then you do it, and you go, well, that's even cooler. And pretty soon you become this person that is expectant for the Holy Spirit to be doing things through you. And as you seize moment to moment to moment, what happens? You gain momentum. <laughs> right? I think it's what it means when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I think he's saying become dynamic and intimate. Understand that at all times the Holy Spirit is residing inside of you and he is, he's got all these moments that we're just walking right by. And these moments would change their life and they would change ours. I want us to become carpe momentum so that we seize the moments and get momentum in our lives. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, you are the one who builds momentum in us. You're the one who takes us to places that are incredible. You're the one who does things in us. We, we must decrease, as John the Baptist said, that you might increase. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, you increase. You increase. And God, I will humble myself by doing what is foolishness to the natural mind and praying in the spirit, by doing what other things, by humbling myself in Jesus' name, by humbling ourselves, we will allow you to move through us more and more and more. God, this is the journey that you've got us on. Thank you for teaching us something today. We reach down and we pull out this cup that is 